0: Well, this morning we have the privilege of hearing from Gil and Darcy Munoz, a couple of our missionaries who are serving in Papua New Guinea, (laughs) and uh, they're going to be giving us a report of what God has been doing the last few years in their lives. Well, uh, let's start with the basic question. Why don't you guys introduce us to your family?
1: This is how women carry babies and everything else in Papua New Guinea. My kids, three of them are in the pews, stand up. (laughs) <laughs> um, Hannah is going into ninth grade Will's going into sixth grade Hattie is going into third grade And Leslie's in the nursery But she's going into kindergarten
0: Gil, okay, can you tell us what, How did you guys become connected to Grace Bible Church?
2: Uh, I came to uh, Texas and m as an international student From Columbia back in 83 And um, The uh, family from Grace invited me to come to church with them. And the very first time I ever heard the gospel was in the gym across the way here. And um, the second time was half an hour later in the auditorium. (laughs) And uh, um, six months later, I came to know the Lord in the home of this family. And it was here that the Lord called me to missions through this church. Um, I baptized Darcy across the way. And the church sent us out as missionaries with weekly Bible translators uh, 10 years ago.
0: Gil, can you tell us a little bit about what your ministry has looked like in Papua New Guinea over the last few years and what you're doing back here in the States?
2: Yeah, um, in Papua New Guinea, I was uh, leading a, a small group of missionaries. At, uh, um, in Papua New Guinea, there are 800 languages and 150 of those we have translated the scriptures into those languages. Uh, we're currently working in about 150 more. There's another 300 that will need a translation, but we just simply don't have the translators. So, a lot of Papua New Guineans are coming to us and saying, if you cannot translate for us, then we will translate, but please help us, show us how. And so, I was in charge of making sure that happened that we would connect with these Papua New Guineans and equip them, train them, help them out to to translate the Bible into their own languages. Um, And I was working with four language groups. But I've never had the translator to be a Bible, the training to be a Bible translator. So um, Wycliffe has asked me during this furlough to to pursue training in linguistics, and I'm doing a master's in uh, linguistics and exegesis.
0: Darcy, can you share a little bit with us about your ministry to the children of Papua New Guinea?
1: Um, First of all, I'd like to say before we went overseas, we spent 10 years in this community, and some of you are the parents of kids like Daniel Peruian, who was one of my students <laughs> when he was about this tall. So, um, God has really helped us to help me to get m- my teaching underway here. And then, when, when we went overseas, I plugged into the schools my kids were attending. And then, when I had spare time, I got to go to villages like you see in this picture and God helped me to to develop a Bible curriculum for poor children and teachers who don't have glue, paper, scissors, or pictures. This curriculum highlights crafts and games for teaching the whole Bible on a timeline. Crafts and games using only bush materials. Now you can see me wearing my Aggie shirt. (laughs) But I'm not an Aggie. I'm really from Kansas. (laughs) Um, But I love this community. And I would teach teachers how I would lead lessons of the whole Bible on a timeline, and then two hours later, these teachers would actually stand in front of the kids and redo, you know, a hundred kids, and redo these bushcraft and games. Afterwards, one such teacher said to me, Darcy, you have removed from us our excuse that we can't teach the Bible to kids because we don't have the supplies. God has given us everything we need here in his creation.
0: Well, Gil, can you give us an example of how God is at work in the tribes of Papua New Guinea?
2: Um, yeah, one of the language groups that I work with is the Usurufa. Uh, you see here in that picture, you see the, the translators for the Usurufa. But when we first started working, when I first started working with them, uh, there were only two of these men who were part of the translation team. And so we asked the leaders of the Usurufa to send us a third, and they sent this man named, named Sivini. And um, he started working. We were going through some training. They were, they were translating Genesis 1 through 4. And what we didn't know about this man it is that he was the fight chief of those Uzzarufa. Uh, and he was personally responsible for the deaths of hundreds of their enemies. Um, he was known as a, as a ruthless and efficient killer. And um, they, they're a small group, about 2,000 people, but their neighbors are large groups, and yet they survive because of his ruthlessness. Um, and um, As we were translating Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, and as Sivini started seeing the word, he tells us that as he saw the words turn into his language, where God comes and tells Cain, the blood of your brother is calling to me from the ground. He said he felt literally like a spear had gone in his side, and that God was saying to him, the blood of all the people you have killed is calling to me from the ground. And at a worship time, hardly able to walk because of the pain, he he went forward and he, he accepted the Lord. Um, after that, he went back to his village and started preaching the gospel and sharing his testimony, not only with his own people, but also with the surrounding people groups. And um, the next time that we went to visit them, we found out that, that every day he was having his village get up between 4 and 5 in the morning and spend the first two hours in prayer and Bible study. And... It just—it didn't stop there. The Lord just kept doing incredible things through what He had done in in saving his life.
0: It's mm, so. amazing. Well, how can we be praying for you guys, family, and your ministry?
1: Um, first of all, um, I'd like to quote this verse, Ephesians six twelve, that says, "For our struggle is not against flesh and blood." but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so um, we have a prayer card. We'd love you to pray for us. They're out through the door and on a table right out in the foyer. We do have financial needs too, but um, I know this morning I was feeling like a cell phone that usually has five bars and I only had this many. And someone that was sitting over here that, I, that is one of our prayer partners, she told me she had gotten my email and she's praying. And I've been really doing great ever since. And by the way, we have relatives from Houston here. Rave your hand. If you know of a good church in Houston, come see me. I wish they could live here, but they work in Houston. And that's our prayer quest. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry I forgot to introduce my, my nephew, Rick, and, and his wife, Jenny, and children. If you will please stand up. <laughs> Rick, Rick has been, Rick has been you know, like a mixture between a son and a brother to us. So.
0: Well, let me pray for you guys right now. And if you guys will join me in, in praying for the Munozes. Lord, thank you so much. Uh, for the stories we've heard this morning, Lord. We're so excited to hear how your gospel is at work uh, all across the planet. Uh, Father, thank you for how uplifting it is to hear about the gospel at work in this man's life, in Savini's life, Lord. What a, a glorious thing that you're able to take a man um, so violent and so hard-hearted and so wicked and transform him, Lord, through the power of your gospel into a witness who proclaims the gospel to other tribes. How amazing, Lord. We're, um, we're humbled uh, to hear that story, Lord. We're reminded of how great you are. We thank you so much for what you're doing in Gill and Darcy's life, Lord. We thank you that um, you, through them, bring us stories like Savini's, Lord. We lift up their family to you, Lord. Lord, and we pray for their protection. Lord, we do acknowledge that there are spiritual forces at work, not just in Papua New Guinea, but even here, Lord, uh, trying to shut down what you're doing through their lives. And so we pray for their protection. We pray that your uh, hedge would be around them, Lord, that you would guard and protect their entire family, Lord. We pray that you would bless these months here in the States as Gil continues to pursue his training, give him incredible insight, um, give him wisdom as he learns um, linguistics. We pray that you would help him to become even more efficient and skilled at uh, training up translators, Lord. We pray that you would bless their work, Lord, how exciting it is to hear about your word being made available in these languages. It's exciting to hear about Darcy's ministry to the children, Lord. We pray that um, you would continue to um, just enlarge the opportunities that they have to serve you in Papua New Guinea. Thank you so much for what you're doing, Lord. We uh, lift all this up to you in the name of your son, Jesus, who makes it all possible. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. All right, well, you can turn to Jonah chapter three. We're going to continue the book of Jonah this morning. It was uh, a little bit ironic sitting down with Gil and Darcy this week and talking to him about their ministry and hearing about Savini and thinking, wow, there's my illustration. There's my sermon right there. So you guys really, really blessed me with his story. Um, What a remarkable story. Here you've got a guy who is violent, who is wicked. It was real interesting the word that Gil used. He was an efficient killer. Murder was nothing for him. Murder was business. He was efficient at it. He was skilled at it. Didn't even, didn't even make him blink to go kill someone. An efficient killer, known by all the tribes around him as a brutal and violent man. Um, how amazing that this guy uh, hears the gospel, believes the gospel, is transformed by the gospel and becomes a bold witness for Jesus Christ. Now, in reality, the story of Savini is really not about Savini at all. Savini is not the hero of his own story. Who's the hero of that story? Well, God is. God is the hero of Savini's story. Who but God could work? I mean, think about how crazy this is. You got this brutal, ruthless murderer, and someone invites him to be part of the translating committee for the Bible. Like, how does that happen? Who who does that? Who thinks let's put the ruthless guy on that translating committee? Well, somehow God works it out. And then they just happen to be going through Genesis chapter four. And then he just happens to make the Cain-Abel connection. I mean, this is God at work in this guy's life. And you really got to go to the potluck, the lunch that they're doing in a couple weeks, because there's more to Savini's story. Uh, As he goes out and shares the gospel, Gil mentioned that, um, he's not going to friendly tribes. He's going to the villages of the people he killed. He is going and sharing with their children whose parents he killed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's laying down his weapons and coming in peace with the gospel of hope. What an incredible story. There is no explanation for Zavini's story other than that God is awesome, that God has limitless grace, that there is no limit to the power of God's grace to reach and call and transform wicked people. Well, that's actually the message Of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is actually, if you think about it, it's really not about Jonah. It's really not about the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is about God. God is the ultimate hero of the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah, especially chapter three that we're looking at this morning, is all about God's character, especially it's about his grace. The point of Jonah chapter three is that there is no limit to the grace of God. There is no limit to the depth of which the grace of God can reach and draw someone out of the pit of despair and wickedness and raise them up. There is no limit to the extent of God's grace. It's not just for good people. It's not just for nice people. It's for all people. That's the point of Jonah 3. It's all about the limitless grace of God. Now, just to review for you where we've been in the last couple weeks, we saw in chapters one and two that God was at work in Jonah's life. He called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah ran away, went in the opposite direction as far as he could, but God judged Jonah and brought Jonah into discipline. And from the depth of the sea, Jonah calls out to God. God rescues Jonah with a fish. Jonah prays in the fish. The fish vomits Jonah up and we pick up the story. Jonah chapter three. As God begins to declare, to reveal the limitless extent of his grace and the life of Jonah. Look with me, starting in verses 1 and 2. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now, this is very interesting. These verses are are remarkable. God gives Jonah the exact same mission at the beginning of chapter 3 that he gave him at the beginning of chapter 1. Okay, back in chapter one, God gave Jonah this same command, but then Jonah blew it. He totally blew it. And so our expectation would be, well, um, maybe God's going to move to plan B for Jonah. He's not part of the A team. He's part of the B team now. He's going to have some small mission. But no, God raises him up and gives him a second chance. A second chance at this really significant mission to go reach this incredibly significant city. Now, why does God give Jonah a second chance? Is it because Jonah deserved it? Well, no. Jonah had blown it. He didn't deserve a second chance. Is it because God needed Jonah? Well, you know, maybe God doesn't have a lot of prophets he can look to. Well, no, we know that the same time that Jonah is alive and ministering, we have Amos and Hosea, much more faithful prophets that God could have called and used, but God doesn't use them. He turns to Jonah, a man who had stumbled, a man who had fallen, a man who had blown it. God gives him a second chance. Now that's actually a pattern that we see throughout scripture. God loves to give people second chances. Uh, and third chances, and fourth chances, and 999th chances. God is a God of limitless grace. He loves to give people chances to continue to serve him. God loves to give second chances to impetuous people like Peter. Peter went out and denied his Savior, and still God calls him and uses him to lead the church. God loves to give second chances to depressed men like Elijah. Elijah gets depressed and discouraged and runs off in the desert, and God calls him back. Loves to give second chances to undisciplined men like Samson. Samson didn't have self-control. He went and sold his strength for sexual gratification. And yet it's amazing in the story of Samson, even after he does that and his hair is cut and he's weak and he's bound and his eyes are gouged out, what does God do? He grows the hair back. He gives him a second chance. He renews his strength so that Samson can once again be a hero for Israel. God loves to give second chances to fearful men like Gideon who continually put the Lord to the test out of cowardice, out of fear. Still, God continued to use Gideon over and over again. He loves to give second chances to old men like Caleb. Long after Caleb had served the Lord faithfully as an old man and still God is using Caleb out there conquering giants, amazing story. He loves to give second chances to men from rough backgrounds like Abraham. We looked at his life, he was a a pagan, he was an idolater. He worshiped other gods and yet God called him and used him. He loves to give second chances to people who have blown it, to people who have failed. Guys like Jonah who were rebellious, who were stubborn, who were hard-hearted. Guys like John Mark. John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But then by the end of the New Testament, John Mark's right there in the middle of the leadership of the early church. God has restored him and called him back to a position of leadership even after he'd blown it. God loves to give us second chances. God loves to act in grace in our lives. We don't deserve second chances. We sure don't deserve the 999th chances that many of us need. And yet in grace, God loves to use us and call us and restore us to mission and ministry. Now, that's very applicable to everyone in this room. I'm not a prophet, but I can say with absolute certainty that if you are a believer in this room and you're still breathing right now, God wants to use you. Say with absolute certainty, if you are a believer, God wants to use you to reach this world and change this world for Jesus Christ. I'm absolutely certain of it. If God still wanted to use Jonah, he still wants to use you. There is no believer outside of the scope of God's grace. He wants to use all of us to reach this world for Jesus Christ. Now, if you've blown it in the past, there may be certain doors of ministry that God has closed, but he's opening other ones. He's always opening doors of ministry for us to serve him and reach this world for Jesus Christ. But wait, you say, Blake, you don't understand. Blake, I'm divorced. God can't use a person like me. No, if he can use Jonah, he can use you. He, 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 not only can he, can he use you, but he wants to use you. He has a special plan for your life. He wants to heal you and grow you and use you to reach out to other people. Maybe he's gonna use you to reach out to people who are in the middle of divorce right now. Maybe you can reach them better than I can. But Blake, you don't understand. I'm from a really rough background. I, I, I did some horrible things in my past. Yeah, I, that doesn't matter. He can use Jonah. He can use you. He can raise you up and transform you and grow you and empower you so you can reach out to people in the midst of rough backgrounds better than I can. But Blake, you don't understand. I struggle with an addictive sin. Yeah, it doesn't matter. God still wants to use you. Now, he wants to heal you. He wants to grow you. I encourage you, if you struggle with addiction to either substances or, or sexual things or something like that, we have a great ministry here at the church called Celebrate Recovery. It meets weekly to provide healing and growth and accountability to help you to grow and to become a person who then God can use. He wants to use you. In the midst of your healing and growth, he wants to take you and use you to reach out to people who are still in the pit to help raise them up. God wants to use you. If you are a believer and you are still breathing, God wants to use you because his grace is limitless. He never tires of us. He wants to use us. That's the first way that we see God's limitless grace at work in Jonah's life. He gives Jonah a second chance. But we see more grace from God into the life of Jonah in the next two verses. Look with me in verses three and four. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, it's hard to grasp the significance of these verses without a little bit of background. See, what Jonah is doing in in going into Nineveh and declaring this word that, hey, you're about to be overthrown, you don't realize how risky this is. See, Nineveh, the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. Jonah is willingly going into enemy territory and telling them bad news, telling them an unpopular message. You're about to be wiped out. Now, actually, the Assyrians aren't just any enemy of Israel. They're not just any enemy. They're actually one of the most, if not the most violent people we have record of. The Assyrians were a people of unparalleled wickedness. And violence. Let me share with you some things we've discovered from archaeology and history about the Assyrians. Here's one of their kings, Asher the II, 883 to 859. About about 100 years before Jonah arrives. Here's what he describes of his exploits. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors, I cut off. And I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens, I burned in the fire." It's kind of way he treated his enemies. He catches up to one of the enemy kings and here's what he does. I flayed him. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. That's not rare in Assyrian history. That's standard operating protocol. That's how they treat people. That's how they treat the nations around them. They were a people of unparalleled wickedness. The prophet Nahum describes the city of Nineveh as the city of blood. It was founded upon the blood of countless thousands of people that they had slaughtered. The, the, the Assyrians, uh, they take their violence a little further than most people. Not only are they violent, but they love their violence. They celebrated their violence. They made sure that everyone would know how violent they were. They took great pains to inscribe blocks of stones with, with the details of their exploits. They loved to, to stoke their pride by reflecting on how powerful and mighty and violent they were. Hear the words of one of their kings, Asher Shadon, I am powerful. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. The chosen one of Asher Nabu." And Marduk. This guy's such a jerk. Can you believe this? He's violent. He's extending his kingdom through murder and slaughter of innocent people. And then he says, you know what? I feel no remorse over that. In fact, I'm going to commission a guy to inscribe my deeds on stone so everyone for all time will know how great I am. They celebrated their violence. They were an unprecedentedly wicked people. Man, going to Nineveh, I'll take going to Iran, North Korea, southern Afghanistan, Sudan. I'll take that any day of the week compared to going to Assyria. There's no place on the face of the earth that is more dangerous for you to go to today than it would have been to go to Assyria when Jonah did. I don't know that we have records of any people that are more violent than them in the ancient world incredibly violent people, incredibly dangerous people. And yet Jonah marches willingly into the midst of their city and proclaims a message of doom to them. Jonah, no no arms, no, he, he, he has no weapons with him. He has no army with him. He willingly walks in the middle of the city and says, you're all doomed 40 days and you're, and you're overthrown. What we're meant to see in this verse is the depth of transformation that God has worked in the life of Jonah, The grace of God has so taken hold of Jonah and transformed Jonah that the rebellious prophet of chapter one is now the mighty bold witness for God. This is Jonah's heroic moment. If you've read the rest of the book, you know uh, it kind of goes downhill from here. (laughs) Jonah doesn't look better at the end of the book. This is his shining moment. This is Jonah the hero. The rebel prophet is now a willing, bold witness for God marching into the heart of enemy territory, an incredibly dangerous city and declaring a dangerous message. At risk of life and limb, he willingly obeys the Lord walking into the city. That's how deep God's grace is. It can get hold of a man who had stumbled, who had been unfaithful, who had fallen and raise him up and turn him into an incredible hero who willingly, boldly, courageously declares the word of the Lord to a people bent on his death. That's the story of the book of Jonah, God's limitless grace at work in people's lives. In Jonah's life, God is showing grace to someone who, is, who belongs to him. Jonah is, it belongs to God. He believes in Yahweh. He follows Yahweh. So Jonah's story is God's limitless grace to his own people. But as the rest of the chapter will reveal, God is not interested in just showing grace to his own people. He wants to show grace to all of mankind, even to the most unlikely of us, even to a city as wicked and violent as Nineveh. That's where the story goes next. God's limitless grace shown to the Ninevites. Let's uh, set the scene again by reviewing a couple of those verses, verses three and four. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. The author goes to a lot of of trouble in this book to help us understand how huge Nineveh is, not just in size, but in importance. It's a very significant city, a capital type city. It's literally a three day journey city. Meaning that if you want to proclaim a message in this city, you have to spend three days. It takes you three days to visit all the precincts of this city and declare your message. So it's a huge city. Jonah goes to this city and he begins to declare, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's an eight word prophecy. Very, very short prophecy. Eight words of doom. That's all that Jonah says. There's just these eight words. He declares it to, to a city that was violent, powerful, arrogant. What do they do? Well, look with me, starting in the next verse, verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let them call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Jonah's three-day ministry begins. He gets into the first day and the Ninevites co-op him. There's no record of day two or three, but we don't have any record because they weren't needed. Jonah begins to declare this message and before he can even make his way through the city, the Ninevites start sharing it with one another and before you know it, they're all on the knees in a mass act of repentance before the Lord. Now, let's walk through this, this story of repentance. Let's look at the details here. Brian shared, I believe, last week about the, the idea of repentance. It's to turn. You turn away from one thing and head the opposite direction. That's what the Ninevites do. They repent. Let's look at what God tells us about their, about their repentance. It begins with belief. Verse five, the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now, it's significant here. The name God in Hebrew here is not Yahweh. It's not the name of the God of Israel, the name that the Israelites call God. It's Elohim, the general word that all people use for a great God. Okay, the Ninevites were pagans. They were pantheists. They believe in tons of gods or polytheists. Uh, I don't think they stopped believing in lots of gods because Jonah doesn't tell them. It's Yahweh doing this. He's the only God. He doesn't give them that information. The Ninevites believe there's lots of gods and among them, there's a great God who is this guy's God, Jonah's God, and he's going to wipe us out. That's what they're actually believing. This is not a story about the individual salvation of Ninevites. It's not a story about individual Ninevites getting a relationship with God and going to heaven. That might have happened, but that's not what this story is about. This story is about the mass repentance, the mass belief of the entire city that the message of Jonah was true. The whole city believes... This guy's right. There is a great God who is angry with us. In 40 days, he's going to wipe us out. That's what they're believing, the message of Jonah. That belief motivates them towards contrition and humility. That's where their repentance turns next. They believe the message of Jonah and they respond in contrition and humility. They fall on their knees before God. Now, the way that you expressed humility before God in the ancient world was, uh, number one, fasting. You, you you uh, withheld food from yourself. God is the one who gives food. You don't let yourself partake of his gift. You, you set yourself in humility before him. So they fast. They also clothe themselves in sackcloth. That's the roughest of fabrics from the ancient world. It was usually made of goat hair. It was the clothing of prisoners and slaves. So they take off their fancy clothing. Nineveh was a rich city. They take it off and they put on the clothing of prisoners and slaves. Why are they doing that? Because they are demonstrating to God and to one another, we are as prisoners and slaves before Elohim. It would be like us putting on the the neon jumpsuits of a prisoner. That's what they're doing. They're putting on a jumpsuit to identify themselves. I am as a prisoner before you. You are great. I am not. This is an incredible act of, of humility before them. What's actually most incredible is it goes all the way up to the king. That's rare. Kings were insulated from the concerns of their people. Kings were powerful. They lived in palaces. They had all the food they wanted. This king steps off his throne, removes his clothes, puts on ash cloth, and he actually sits in ashes. He takes it even a step further. That was a further sign of humility. He's throwing ashes on his head to show that my, my life is as burnt up before you, God. I am nothing compared to you. The people respond in contrition and Humility. But they go further than that. You'll notice the proclamation of the king, he, he also includes in their repentance a change in behavior. Let every man turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Now it's, it's interesting here, I don't know if you noticed, Jonah never told them what they'd done wrong, does he? No, he just says 40 days and you're wiped out. He, he didn't need to tell them what they'd done wrong. The king knows what he's done wrong. He knows it's their wickedness and their violence. Um, this is a good reminder to us that all human beings are, are given by God a conscience, a moral compass of right and wrong. Jonah didn't need to tell the Ninevites what they'd done wrong. They knew. Now, it had been that they were so powerful that they celebrated what they'd done wrong. But now God was catching up with them. And they knew, oh man, we know exactly what we've done wrong. And so the king calls them to turn away from those evil activities. Repentance means to turn. You have to determine from the context exactly what's being turned from and what's being turned to. For the Ninevites, they were called to turn from their wickedness, from their violence, the harm that they were perpetrating on others, and turn to righteousness, to obedience to the Lord. They're called to turn away from wickedness and violence, Towards God. And they do that. There's this mass change of behavior among the Ninevites. Their repentance is incredibly genuine. You'll notice also this act of mass repentance. It's urgent and it's extensive. They immediately send out this proclamation. They shut down the city. They shut down business. They get on their knees. They clothe themselves in sackcloth and they pray before God. It's it's urgent. They're before God. They know our, our time has come. We have to get before God right now. There's not a moment to waste. Uh, it's, it's, it's extensive too. Did you notice that they clothe their animals in sackcloth? You ever wonder about that? When, when I sin, when I blow it, I'm, I'm not thinking, well, I should go get my cat, Maggie, and I should put her in a bag and, and I should bring her in, you know, into my room with me as, I, as I'm bowing before the Lord. I should force her on her knees and you know, include her in my, in my repentance before the Lord. I, I don't really think like that. It seems silly to me. What, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that to demonstrate to God the utter extent of their repentance, of their sorrow. They're saying, God, we hold nothing back from you. Even our livestock we place before you, everything we place before you, we know we're in the wrong. We hold nothing back. They're demonstrating the extent of their sorrow over their sin. Final thing I want you to notice about this act of repentance. It was based, it was predicated upon hope. Look at verse 9. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. They're hoping, oh please, please let it be that this great God, Elohim, that he would see our repentance and he would withdraw his anger. He would turn from the harm he was going to cause us. Now fortunately for the Ninevites, that's exactly what God does. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's really interesting in Hebrew, the, the word play here. It literally says, if you translate it in English, they turn or turned from the harm they were causing others, and as a result, God turned from the harm he was going to cause them. It's a direct parallel. They turn from harm towards others, God turns from harm towards them. In response to their repentance, in response to their change of behavior, God takes away his wrath, his judgment that he was going to pour upon them. Now, why does God do that? Did they deserve to be spared? Was God obligated to spare them because of their repentance? Well, no. A few days of repentance, that doesn't make up for the hundreds of thousands of people they had slaughtered in cold blood. No, they, they didn't deserve to be spared. God spared them out of grace. God wants to use the Ninevites as an example of his limitless grace. He can shower grace upon a people who have slaughtered hundreds of thousands. He loves them and wants to show them grace. God is demonstrating in action the truth of some passages we encounter in the Old Testament. Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. This verse is telling us that God sits in heaven longing, hoping to be able to show grace and mercy to the most wicked people on the planet. Is that how you see God? I know for myself, I often think of God, just can't wait to judge the wicked of this earth. No, no. What God longs for is grace. What he longs for is to show mercy and compassion to those who don't deserve it. He longed to give grace to the Ninevites. Even with how wicked they were, what he wanted was grace. That's made even more explicit in Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. If anyone deserved to, be, to die, to be wiped out, it was the Ninevites. They had slaughtered hundreds of thousands and wrote songs about it. They were so excited for their wickedness. And yet God longs to bless them, longs to turn them to obedience, longs to draw them to himself. He is a God of limitless grace. God loves to give grace. His preference is always grace. I don't know if you realize that. God's preference is never wrath. He does not enjoy judging people with wrath. He does not enjoy pushing the smite button. It's not what God longs to do. He loves giving grace. He loves showering grace upon those who don't deserve it. And so we see God at work in grace among the Ninevites. He looks down from heaven and he sees their repentance. He sees their belief and their genuine contrition and humility and their change of behavior. And in response, he chooses not to fulfill the words of the prophecy. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. Um, Some of you may not have caught uh, the words that I just said. Some of you, um, the words I just said actually may sound a little bit like heresy. God looks down from heaven and he sees what these people do and he chooses not to fulfill the words of his own prophecy. Wait a minute, I thought prophecy always comes true. I thought when God tells us what's going to happen in the future, it always comes true. Well, but when we look at chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, what does Jonah say? Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no conditions. There's no but. He says it's going to be overthrown in 40 days. Guess what? 40 days later, Nineveh was still standing. Nineveh was not destroyed. God did not execute this judgment that he promised upon Nineveh. What's going on here? Was Jonah lying? Was Jonah mistaken? Well, no. Jonah 3 is actually a really, really good example to us of the reality that there are two types of prophecy in Scripture. As you read your Bibles you will come across two different types of prophecy and it's important to understand the difference. Often when you're reading your Bible you will come across the first type of prophecy. Simple declarations by God of the unchangeable future. God simply declares that this is what's going to happen nothing's going to change it. An example God declares to Abraham your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt for 430 years. It's unchangeable. doesn't matter how righteous they are. doesn't matter how wicked they are. They're going to be in Egypt for 430 years. Nothing they can do about it. Another example, the Old Testament declares to us, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Guess what? That's unchangeable. That's unavoidable. doesn't matter how righteous the city of Bethlehem was. The Messiah was going to be born there. Much of prophecy in your Bibles is God simply declaring unchangeable truth about the future. But that's not what's going on in the book of Jonah. There's a second type of prophecy. Prophecy that is a declaration by God of what will happen if things remain unchanged. Oftentimes, God declares to people what will happen if things remain unchanged. And he doesn't have to give the condition. He doesn't have to give the if statement. He can just declare, this is what's gonna happen if things remain unchanged. Jonah is an example. When God says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, even though the Ninevites didn't know it, what God meant was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed assuming nothing changes. God knows that's the reality of the statement. The Ninevites don't know. They're hoping. (laughs) The Ninevites, verse nine, they're praying, oh, let it be type two of of biblical prophecy. Please let it be something that can be changed. They don't know until it's done. You often don't know till afterwards whether it was a simple declaration of the future or the declaration of what will happen if things remain unchanged. Now this can actually work both ways, both for judgment and for blessing. Another example is Josiah, king of Judah. One of the very few righteous kings you'll find anywhere in scripture. He uh, brought forth many reforms. He cleansed the nation of idolatry. He led them back into obedience to the Lord. And so 2 Chronicles Chapter 34, God shows up, gives a prophet to Josiah, and that prophet declares from God, Josiah, because you have been faithful to God, God says to you, you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. In other words, Josiah, you will not die in battle. You will not die in warfare. You will not die early. You will live a full life and die at peace. Okay, one chapter later. Next chapter, Second Chronicles. Uh, we have a guy, a king named Necho coming out of Egypt and he is declaring war on a neighbor of Judah. And, and Josiah decides to go to war with Necho and, and Necho sends word to Josiah. He says, hey, Josiah, bro, don't, don't go to war with me. It's your God who called me out of Egypt to go declare war on them. This is not your fight. God does not want you in this fight. If you enter into this fight, it's gonna be bad for you. Well, the text tells us explicitly, Josiah did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Josiah did not listen to the words of God. What happens? Next verse, he's hit by an arrow and dies in his chariot. He did not live a full life and he did not die a peaceful death. So was God lying? No, it was type two of biblical prophecy. God was saying, Josiah, let me predict the future for you. Let me tell you the future if things remain unchanged. If you continue to walk in faithfulness to me, you will live a full life and die a peaceful death. Josiah didn't stay on that plan. He disobeyed God and as a result, he lost that blessing. Now, Jeremiah, another prophet of the Old Testament, actually explains what's going on in these prophecies like what we see in Jonah. He tells us in Jeremiah 18, God sends him to a potter's house to see a potter making clay vessels. And here's what God says. The word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. In other words, The Lord's declaring, uh, Jeremiah, I have the right to proclaim judgment upon a people and if they repent, I can withdraw judgment. And I have the right to declare blessing upon a people and if they disobey, I can withdraw blessing. What's really going on here in the book of Jonah? Uh, The prophecy of Jonah is, is not a lie and it's not a mistake. What it actually is, is an act of grace. You see, if God really just wanted to wipe out Nineveh, he wouldn't have sent Jonah. Why mess with this rebellious prophet and the boat and the storm and the whale and all that jazz? Just wipe them out. Fire, brimstone, all that city's gone. No, by sending Jonah, God is giving Nineveh grace. By sending this prophecy, this prophecy is not a prophecy of judgment. It's actually a prophecy of grace. God is saying, I'm giving you a chance, Nineveh. I'm giving you warning 40 days ahead. Jonah's words are grace from God. God didn't just show Nineveh grace by sparing them once they repent. He showed them his limitless grace by sending Jonah in the first place, by sending them warning of what would come. But that's not the extent of God's grace in chapter three. Actually, as you look at the details of chapter three, I think that God had been showering grace upon the Ninevites for years before Jonah arrived. That's really the only way I can explain what happens in chapter three. Did you notice how instantaneous this repentance is? Jonah speaks these eight words and before he can head to the next part of the city, the whole city knows it's all passing from mouth to mouth. Everybody's getting on their knees, stripping off their clothes, putting on sackcloth and repenting. There, There is no parallel anywhere in scripture of this kind of mass instantaneous repentance before God. I think chapter three is is clearly revealing to us that God had been at work in grace in the hearts of the Ninevites for years before Jonah got there. Now that actually lines up with the history we know of Assyria. Jonah showed up to Nineveh about 759 BC. That was a time that was particularly weak and vulnerable for the Assyrian kingdom. This incredibly powerful, violent people had actually suffered military defeats. That was really rare for them. They were really concerned about this. It seemed like the gods were turning against them. They didn't know what to do as their territory was encroached upon. In addition to that, the city of Nineveh had experienced two plagues shortly before Jonah showed up, 765 BC, and then right before he shows up, they're experiencing plagues. In addition to that, just a few years earlier, 763 BC, see there was a total eclipse of the sun right over Nineveh. Now to us, we think, hey, cool. To them, they thought, oh my gosh, we're dead. An eclipse was a sign of divine judgment to ancient peoples. So I think when Jonah shows up, I think the text makes this clear. Jonah shows up in Nineveh. He speaks these eight words and everybody repents because it was a city on edge. It was a city that knew something ain't right. It's a city that knew we are in trouble. Some God is angry with us and we don't know why. We don't know what's going on. Jonah shows up and he gives him the answer. My God's going to wipe you out in 40 days. In other words, God's grace had been at work preparing the Ninevites for years before Jonah arrived, working through plagues and battles and eclipses to prepare their hearts to hear the message and respond in repentance. This is an incredible story of God's limitless grace at work in the lives of an incredibly wicked people. That's really the inescapable conclusion of chapter three of Jonah is that God is a God of limitless grace, that he doesn't just show grace to his people, to us. He shows grace to the most unlikely, evil, wicked, violent people out there. And he doesn't just show them a little bit of grace. He doesn't just spare them when they repent. No, he's showing them grace for years and years, limitless grace, sending his prophets, working in their hearts, working through the natural order of the world to bring about their repentance. Our God is a God of limitless grace grace. That's the point of Jonah chapter three, really the point of the whole book. Jonah is not about Jonah. It's not about the Ninevites. It's about God. It's about God's character. And specifically, it's about his limitless grace that God loves to shower grace upon those who don't deserve it. There is no limit to the depth of God's grace. He can pull a person who is sinking to the bottom of the sea up out of the sea in miraculous ways and restore them and transform them and bless them and empower them to become a hero who leads what is perhaps the greatest revival in all of recorded history. The most instantaneous, powerful, comprehensive, extensive revival we have record of. God pulls a guy from the bottom of the sea to become the agent of that revival. There is no limit to the depth of God's grace and there is no limit to the extent of God's grace. It's not just for his people. It's not just for good people. It's not just for moral people. It's for all people. If God could show years of limitless grace to the Assyrians, there's no people group. There's no political group. There's no group anywhere on this planet today that is outside the scope of God's grace. God's grace is for all people. So the application for us this morning, first and foremost, is to ask the question, have you received God's limitless grace in salvation? See, every one of us is born an enemy of God. Every one of us is born disobeying God. We don't follow God. We do what the Bible calls sin. And our sin separates us from God. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that separation. I can't work my way back to God because I'm a sinner and he's perfect. But in grace, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live and walk among us, to live a perfect life and then to hang on the cross and take upon himself all of our sins and die in our place. Jesus is the point at which God's justice and grace are fully satisfied, are brought together. God's justice is satisfied in his death so that God can now extend grace to all of us. Fortunately, though, sin and death couldn't hold Jesus down. He rose from the dead three days later, and now he offers to all human beings, even the worst of human beings, the infinite grace of God, if they will simply receive it. That's all you have to do is simply receive it. Simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and God's grace covers you. He gives you a relationship for this life, for the next life that you can never lose. So ha- have you received the grace of God in salvation? If there's something that's holding you back, if, if you have an intellectual objection, if you just say, I-, I just can't believe that this guy who is God died for me and rose from the dead. I, I can't believe that God would only require faith from me. Or maybe you have something in your past that's holding you back. If there's something that's holding you back, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. There's nothing more important that you will ever do than receive the grace of God. Now, for those of us who have received the grace of God in salvation, Jonah chapter three challenges us to receive the grace of God in mission. Do you realize that God wants to use every believer to reach the world for Jesus Christ? He has a unique mission for every one of us. The the basics are the same. Every one of us has the goal of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. That's That's the same for all of us, but the details are unique for every one of us. Every one of us has unique abilities, gifts, experiences, temperament that allows us to reach a unique segment of this world in a unique way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point of Jonah 3 is that if God can use a guy like Jonah a stubborn, fallen, rebellious prophet to reach hundreds of thousands of people, then he can use every one of us. God wants to use you. If you are a believer and you are still breathing, then God wants to use you to reach this world for Jesus Christ in some unique, eternally significant way. The challenge of Jonah is, do you believe it? Will you take Jonah 3 on faith? Will you believe that God's grace is without limit? that he can and wants to reach every human being on this planet with his grace, including you, not just for salvation, but for mission to take you and use you to change this world in heroic and significant ways for his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray for his help to believe in the limitless grace of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you and first we acknowledge that you are, are righteous, you are just in your judgment and in your wrath. Lord, every human being deserves your punishment. You are holy and we are not. We have all sinned against you. Your wrath is perfect. Your wrath is just. But how we rejoice that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to satisfy your wrath in our place. That he took our sins upon himself and died as a just penalty for us. Thank you so much for the limitless extent of your grace that you gave your own son to die on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that not only do you desire to save us and redeem us and forgive us, but you wanna transform us and use us in significant ways. Lord, we acknowledge that you don't need us. Just like Jonah, there were better ways, there were easier ways that you could have accomplished your will, but you love to use fallen people like us. How we praise you and thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that for every one of us, that we would see you as you truly are, that we would see you as a God of limitless grace, a God who does not rejoice in punishment, a God who does not look forward to benching us, to putting us in the penalty box, but a God who loves to use us and shower us with grace and raise us up and transform us and grow us and impact the world through us. Thank you so much, Lord. We don't deserve that. It's totally by your grace. We praise you for the, the grace that is so clearly revealed in the book of Jonah. Help us to believe it and to live it out. In the name of your son, Jesus, who makes that grace possible, we pray, amen. All right next week, we'll finish the story in chapter four.